0: and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Welcome to another podcast on unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Kassanet and today we're going to be talking about Revelation 2 verse 17 that uh, relates to the hidden manna that represents eternal life. This uh, corresponds to section 22 in my book if you're reading along and following along in that context. Uh, By way of brief introduction to uh, this verse today. Uh, we're still talking about the letter that john wrote to the church in pergamos Uh, it's found in revelation 2 verses 12 through 17. we've already seen how uh, christ talks to the saints in pergamos uh, like a sharp sword that comes from his mouth cutting both ways you'll recall also that uh, the Savior described the Saints in Pergamos as dwelling where Satan's seat is um, and that's because uh, Satan was very strong and very powerful in this influential city that was also kind of the religious capital in Asia Minor We also learned uh, in our podcast from yesterday that there were those among the saints who held to the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which was a stumbling block or a compromise of their standards that included eating meat sacrificed to angels. Now that's going to become an important image that by the end of this podcast we'll talk about the relationship between eating meat sacrifice to idols that basically brings spiritual death and eating the hidden manna from heaven that represents eternal life or the ability to uh, live uh, in uh, exaltation and in an exalted state forever and so uh, those are some of the kind of introductory things you should just kind of need to be aware of as we begin our discussion of Revelation 217. So let me go ahead and quote that and then keep in mind we're only going to be discussing a part of this verse today dealing with the hidden manna. So I'm going to give you the full verse now uh, but then we're going to limit our discussion and uh, we'll talk about other portions of this verse uh, next week in our podcast. So this is what it says in Revelation 217 quote He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, the reason we're discussing only the hidden manna today is because it's kind of a pardon the pun, meaty subject. Um, and the other portions of the verse have enough uh, subject matter and content to discuss that they weren't their own little separate podcast. So uh, we'll continue with that. So today's podcast will be a little bit shorter than uh, some of the others because we're basically chopping this verse up into about three parts to uh, discuss it fully. Okay, so this verse that I've just quoted to you is essentially the end of John's letter to the saints in Pergamos, and it ends with the same admonition that is given to all seven churches, and that admonition is, those who hear what the Spirit saith Uh, need to hear and if you overcome then a certain promise is given and in this case it is to eat of the hidden manna it will be the white stone it'll be the new name all of those things are interrelated but essentially uh, that is the promise of eternal life that you're given and so the idea is you have to overcome and you do that by gaining victory in the conflict with sin and persecution and trials and I discuss this concept in more detail in the podcast that I did on uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 when John was addressing his letter to the Ephesians and you'll find that podcast on February 10th of 2024 if you want to go back and get more information about what exactly it means to overcome. So today as we begin our podcast about the hidden manna I'm reminded of the comedy sketch by Abbott and Costello that was done originally in the 1930s and it's called, Who's on First? (laughs) And so those of you who are familiar with it, it's a a funny um, sketch that is talking about baseball players on a professional team who have certain nicknames that have been given to them by the fans. And those nicknames are who, what, I don't know, today, tomorrow, and why. And so if you haven't seen this sketch, I'm not going to do it justice as I kind of try and describe what they're doing. And so you can always go to YouTube because there's a filmed version of this sketch uh, from 1945. Just type in Abbott and Costello, who's on first, it'll pop up. So at any rate, the sketch begins by... uh, abbott telling costello what the nicknames are for the baseball players on this professional baseball team and so i'm going to kind of imitate some of the uh, abbott and costello thing as i again i have to apologize in advance it's i'm not going to do it justice (laughs) but at any rate so keep in mind that the uh when he's talking about who's on first who is the nickname of the guy who is playing first base so that's what you just kind of have to understand and so this is abbott begins the sketch telling costello the names of the baseball players saying who's on first what's on second i don't know on third which then costello responds what you don't know the guy's names and he says yes then who's on first and abbott answers yes no i mean the fella's name on first base answer who and Costello then says, the fellow playing first base. And Abbott again says, who? And uh, Abbott, Costello then says, the guy playing first base. And Abbott says, who is on first? <laughs> so that's just kind of an introduction to this little bit of a sketch. Uh, and the reason I bring this up is because we have a similar confusing incident on the first morning, when the Israelites step out of their tents in the wilderness and find this fluffy white stuff sitting around on the ground that we know as manna. And so here's the abbot and Costello sketch for that particular context of them coming out and discovering manna. And so abbot says, well, would you look at that? What is it? And Costello would say, that's what I'd like to know. Abbot says, what is it? And Costello says, no, I want to know what you call this stuff. And Abbot says, what is it? Costello, you don't know what it's called, do you? I certainly do. What is it? Costello, no, I'm asking you. And Abbot says, asking me what? Costello, what is it? And Abbott would say, yes. <laughs> so that's the Abbot and Costello for the man. And the reason why that's the sketch is because in Hebrew the word manna means what is it <laughs> so, at any rate um the word itself is commonly said to come from the Hebrew word man which is an expression of surprise that is what is it as a kind of a question uh, but more probably the word manna comes from manan, which means to allot denoting an allotment or a gift some some also say that it comes from the egypt egyptian word menu which means food and that would make some sense because of course the israelites were coming out of egypt uh, at the time that manna was given to them and fell from heaven it actually came uh, for the first time after the eighth encampment in the desert and it was furnished daily except on the sabbath uh, for all the years of wandering in the desert, and uh, on the Friday before the Sabbath, essentially they would get uh, a double portion. And so for uh, for some 12,000 days, uh, this was the staple that they were eating, and it continued for all these years until the Israelites finally crossed over the Jordan River, and encamped uh at Gilgal and then all of a sudden they come out of their tent one morning and uh, there's no manna. <laughs> and so Abbot would say, uh, Where's what is it? And Costello would say, Now don't start that again. <laughs> so at any rate, we're told in Exodus sixteen four what the purpose of the manna is. And it says this quote Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. Close quote. Now, that's kind of an interesting description, because you have this vision or this impression that the the manna rains down from heaven and feeds the people, and yet the Lord equates that rain that comes down as bread from heaven, saying uh, it's basically to prove the people. Well, if I'm just handed, you know, free McDonald's, it doesn't feel like much of a prove, proving ground. Uh, you know, you just eat it and uh, you're grateful for uh, the food. But yet the reason why the manna proved to be a uh, test for the Israelites was because there was an limited amount that they were able to collect and consume in a specific day and the excess if they tried to gather excess manna it became wormy and stank to high heaven and so it has a pretty short shelf life of just one day except as I mentioned for the double portion that they could gather on the Sabbath and the people who gathered more than what they were supposed to uh, and if they ate the spoiled manna they would die <laughs> And so this is how the the proving kind of occurs. And so essentially, it's rather noteworthy that you have this manna coming down from heaven, but it killed people if they used it improperly. And this is the nature of the gospel. It's both a gospel of salvation and a gospel of damnation. We are accountable for the laws that we have been given. And if we've follow them, and do what the Lord expects of us, then they become to us a source of salvation. On the other hand, being accountable as we are, if we choose to ignore them and violate them, they then become the source of our damnation. And so it's like the Lord's two-edged sword that he's talking about with these saints in Pergamos. It can cut one way or the other. It can cut in a defensive way to bless people's lives, or it can cut offensively to be a curse and the source of spiritual death to those who, uh, fail to be obedient. And so the lesson is, uh, something as simple as the Lord, um, giving people this manna and, uh, helping the people to understand that I make the rules. You have to do what I say with regard to something as basic as your daily staple. And so that's a good lesson for us today. And we've kind of uh, have to avoid what I call the Napoleon Dynamite Syndrome, where he at various times in the movie says, I do what I want. (laughs) That's something we quote in our family quite regularly. But at any rate, In a gospel sense, you don't get to do what you want if you want the blessings instead of a curse. And so in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, uh, we're also told this about the manna, quote, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no, and he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Close quote. So these same words were repeated by Christ on the mount of temptation, and so Satan had come to him, saying, If thou be the Son of God command that these stones be made bread. Now, the big question, of course, in this temptation and all three temptations on the Mount war was the word if, if thou be the Son of God. It was a test of faith. Now, the Savior knew that he was the son of God. Um, But if he were to succumb to the temptation and prove to himself by the use of his power improperly to show that he was the son of God, it would essentially be um, something that would demonstrate a lack of faith. And so the big temptation is in the word if if thou be the Son of God. And so in this particular temptation, he's saying, hey, just turn these stones into bread, and then you can prove to yourself and to anybody else that you really are the Son of God as you profess to be. But Jesus answered in Matthew 4, 4, saying, But he answered and said, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God close quote and so again we find here the savior in response to the temptation telling satan uh, exactly what the lord had revealed the lord jehovah had revealed to the israelites in deuteronomy 8 2 through 3 and so uh, obviously uh, jesus uh, as a young boy was attending his seminary classes and learning all of his uh, old testament scriptures And so um, he knew the scripture that uh, would respond to this temptation by Satan. So let's talk about this idea of uh, what manna actually is. This is the visible manna. Eventually we're going to get around to talking about the symbolism and the hidden manna. But for now, let's talk about what the visible manna is. So it was very visible among the Israelites as soon as Abbot and Costello walked outside their tent the first morning and realized, hey, what is it? And so it sustained them physically and was not in any way hidden from their view. So the manna itself was like a coriander seed, uh, and it's said to be the color of badyllium in Num- Numbers 11.7. The size of a coriander seed is approximately four to six millimeters, about an eighth to a quarter of an inch. And uh, the badyllium color is uh, somewhat sounds like it's black or a pale resin because it's a resin that comes from this black tree uh, that has kind of a pale-colored resin to it, and so it makes you wonder, well, is that what the color of manna was, but manna was, in fact, uh, white in color, and it was comparable to hoarfrost in the early mornings, and so it just kind of comes down like dew, and then kind of uh, grows as the moisture uh, condenses into uh, a little round ball, and so that's kind of what it looked at. And the Israelites would then gather it in containers where it could be ground into uh, their mills or their mortars. It would be uh, baked in pans and they would use it to make these cakes of bread. And so. You can just imagine them having to eat this for about 12,000 days and every day the same thing. And you you got to believe that uh, people were trying to figure out new ways to cook it and sharing their recipes on Pinterest and uh, say, hey, I found a new way to cook, man. <laughs> so anyway, it tasted like uh, fresh oil, according to what some say. And... Uh, that was their staple, and that's what they got to eat for uh, a very long time, wandering for almost 40 years in the wilderness. Now, this coincides with other life-saving miracles that the Israelites also experienced, and beginning when the uh, they had the parting of the Red Sea, and when Moses struck the rock and caused water to gush from a rock, they had Whales that uh, appeared and fed them their clothing didn't wax old and their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years and this reminds me a little bit of uh, my house um, you know I kind of like to wear the same clothes, and, you know, as long as they're just not totally rags, I mean, I continue to wear them and wear them and wear them. I'm kind of like the Israelites in the wilderness. Jan always wants to buy new clothes. She wants to get me a new shirt and new this, that, and you know, I keep saying, no, no, quit getting me these shirts. I don't want anything new. I'm I'm just fine. And so we have this little bit of an ongoing struggle, and, uh, you know, I consider it an act of faith not to be getting new clothes, <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate so that's a little bit about the uh, the visible manna and the fact that essentially it was from the days of Moses a foreshadow of Jesus Christ because salvation is in Christ and so Moses answered the question of what is it when he said in Exodus sixteen fifteen. This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. And this was what then became the subject matter of the Savior's Bread of Life sermon found in John chapter 6. And let me share with you verses 49 through 51, which says, Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Close quote. Now what's interesting about this particular sermon is, of course, that it came the day after Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding the five thousand, and you'll recall that after the 5,000 were fed, uh, Jesus and his disciples departed what would have been the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They crossed over the sea by night, came into Capernaum, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And many of the people followed him and came to the synagogue in uh, Capernaum to see what was going on. And uh, essentially they were looking for more physical bread that he had fed them the day before and they came to Capernaum hoping that he would feed them again and uh, What they're going to find out is that Jesus is not going to feed them again physically But he via the sermon uh, of the bread of life is going to feed them spiritually and telling him essentially speaking of himself that he is this bread of life He is essentially the son of God is what he's telling them Now, when Jesus said this in the the course of his uh, discussion on the bread of life, this is what we find in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, because it was a hard saying for many people. And it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God." So here we find the conclusion to the bread of manna that was given in the wilderness to the Israelites, uh, that it saved them temporally as Jesus, as the bread of life, can save all men and women spiritually. And so there's the connection between the visible manna from uh, the Old Testament days and the hidden manna, who represents Jesus Christ uh, in the New Testament, having the power to save men and women spiritually. So this is uh, kind of expressed in Colossians 3.3, where it says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And in 1 John 3.2, It says, When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now until that day comes, until he comes into our life, until he appears at his second coming, Jesus can be hidden or can be unseen and even unknown by wicked people. And he becomes revealed in a good way to him or her who overcomes. And so he thus becomes the hidden manna, which also parallels the fruit of the tree of life. Now you'll recall that I have mentioned that there are 12 promises found in the book of Revelation for overcomers, and they all relate to a promise of eternal life. And so by way of quick review to the Ephesians that overcame, came the promise of the tree of life and being able to partake of the tree of life, again representing exaltation. To the Smyrnian saints, they were promised a crown of life. To the saints in Pergamos, they are now promised this hidden manna and also another part of the verse that we'll get to next week, this white stone. So the symbol of being hidden comes from a pot of manna that Aaron placed or hid in the Ark of the Covenant and you'll recall that the Ark of the Covenant is located in the Holy of Holies in the Tabernacle you could remember this from uh, watching the Raiders of the Lost Ark and get a pretty good image of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like because what they depicted in that movie is a pretty close depiction of how it's described in the book of Exodus so the Ark of the Covenant included what is known as the mercy seat which was located above the lid between these two cherubim that have their outstretched wings uh, on the top of the uh, golden chest and so it's not like there was an actual seat uh, sitting between the cherubim it's just that space between these outstretched wings of the cherubim that we refer to as the mercy seat it is also the place of the shekinah or where the glory and presence of god would appear so the 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 chest itself was made of acacia or shittim wood it was about 36 inches long about 24 inches high and deep and it was covered with pure gold and the ark represents god's earthly throne and his presence now the ark was ultimately lost in about 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came in and destroyed the first temple of Solomon this was the same period of time of course that uh, Lehi had been prophesying in Jerusalem that uh, you have to clean up your act or the Lord is going to destroy this people and he was doing that in about 600 BC or about 13 years before Nebuchadnezzar then comes in and destroys the temple, takes the temple vessels into Babylon, and a lot of the uh, Jews were then taken captive into Babylon at that time. But it's generally believed that the pot of manna that was located inside the Ark of the Covenant was probably lost sometime before that. In addition to the manna, the Ark also contained Aaron's rod that uh, budded like an almond branch, Uh, It also contained the stone tablets of the covenant, what we refer to as the Ten Commandments, and a portion of the garment of the coat of many colors of Joseph that uh, never waxed old and continued to uh, exist. So if you're wondering uh, how much manna was actually placed on the inside of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. This is probably another one of those uh, jeopardy kind of questions, but at any rate, it it turns out that there was one Omar of manna placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, an Omar, as you well know, uh, was one-tenth of an ephah. Now, an ephah was equal to 72 logs Uh, which was also equal to the Sumerian mina. And a Sumerian mina was equal to one-sixtieth of a maris, uh, which means that an omar was twelve-one-hundredths of a mina. So, uh, just to answer that question that's been bothering you, uh, we now know how much uh, manna was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And so if you want to put it in more terms that are uh, familiar to us uh, in these days, it equals about 3.6 liters or about 3.8 U.S. cores. So it's about a gallon. In the Jewish study Bible, it would be, they say it's equivalent to about 0. 0.6 gallons. So a little bit of a question, give or take there uh, as to how much it is. And uh, oh, by the way, uh, an Omar is also equal to 43.2 chicken eggs. <laughs> and its dry weight is somewhere between 3.5 and, and 3.9 pounds. Now the good news is for this uh, third forty-three 43.2 chicken eggs worth of uh, manna that was placed into the Ark of the Covenant, it never spoiled. and It didn't fill with worms. It didn't stink inside the Ark of the Covenant. And this, of course, becomes the hidden manna with the symbol of the incorruptibility of those who partake of it and thereby become exalted in the celestial kingdom and so that's the nature of the hidden manna but it's important to keep in mind that it, it's not hidden in the sense that it is a secret as to its meaning we all understand this having explained it and perhaps from your own familiarity with it, uh, there's nothing that is truly hidden about the symbolism of the hidden manna. It's not a secret, and so the sense of being hidden means that it is reserved and it is incorruptible. It is laid up from human gaze to be revealed uh, when we are allowed, through our worthiness and overcoming, To come into the immediate presence of God that is to essentially in a sense come into the Holy of Holies and to be in the presence of God who would be seated in the mercy seat above the ark and until then the manna remains hidden until his appearing in our own lives individually or at the time of his second coming and then these uh, things will be revealed now in Jewish tradition The ark and the manna in the ark is to be restored at the second coming. And so the Messiah is to bring with him again this manna from heaven. And so in Jewish tradition, Moses is seen as the first deliverer with physical manna. And Christ, the Messiah, is to be the second deliverer with spiritual manna, which is essentially himself. So this tradition is actually reflected in Revelation eleven nineteen, which is John's first description of the second coming and his kind of his uh, uh, discussion as the second coming, and he's using it in the context of the image of the ark of the covenant, where it says, quote, "And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple." the ark of his testament close quote now the context for this verse is uh the period of time during the great tribulation when the two witnesses testify and minister in jerusalem they are killed their bodies lie in the uh, streets of jerusalem for three and a half days and then they're resurrected and john has this vision of the temple of god being opened and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament which again is reflective of this same symbolism that uh, Jesus is uh, the ark. He is the manna that's inside the ark symbolically. And so what John is seeing is essentially a representation associated with his second coming. Now let's connect the, uh, the hidden manna and the bread of life that we've been talking about specifically to the Pergamos saints and by extension, to each of us so you'll remember that uh, when we talked about the uh, problems that the Saints and Pergamos were having they were guilty of eating meat offered to idols and uh, so they were compromising their standards and so you can get more detail of this if you take a look at my podcast from yesterday in Revelation 2:14 through 16 and and so this is their problem is the their um having this stumbling block placed before them which was the uh eating of meat offered to idols as one thing at least. Now this stands in contradistinction to The manna that is offered in this verse for those who are willing to overcome and who do in fact overcome the stumbling blocks of life and sin and tribulation and trials. And so if you overcome the stumbling block of eating meat that has been offered to idols, then what you get in place of it is manna. And uh, and the Lord rains down this manna on those who are willing to overcome and to avoid eating the meat of idols. And so uh, the hidden manna comes from the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, whereas the food uh, of idols comes from the seat of Satan. So you'll remember that the Pergamos saints were told to be dwelling in the place where Satan had his seat or throne. That's because it was the religious capital in Asia Minor, and it was a place of great wickedness where Satan had great power. And so essentially the the Pergamos saints were dwelling where Satan has his seat and uh, were then, in some situations and circumstances, partaking of the meats offered to idols. And what Christ was offering them was hidden manna that comes from his seat or his throne, uh, which was above the Ark of the Covenant. And so uh, as we kind of come to a conclusion of our discussion, the main thing I think we have to learn from this as a takeaway is that hidden manna in our lives is mutually exclusive with the meats that are off that are sacrificed to idols that uh, men and women can partake of. That is worldliness, compromising our standards. You can't have both. You can't have hidden manna in your life at the same time that you're partaking of uh, worldliness and compromising your standards. And So I guess the, the fundamental question that you have to be asking yourself as you think about these is whose table are you going to be dining at today is it going to be the table that has been set by the Savior who offers manna or you're going to be eating and dining at the table that has been set by Satan who offers worldliness and compromise standards so uh, just food for thought <laughs> Pardon the pun. Um, Thanks for listening and subscribing and sharing. Thanks to Jenna Daly for all the technical uh, wizardry. Uh, Next week we're going to be talking again about Revelation 2.17, only this time we'll be talking about the promise that overcomers will receive a white stone uh, as part of the promise of the Savior, a very different kind of symbol but means essentially the same thing. It's a promise of eternal life. And uh, so I look forward to being with you to uh, have that discussion with you.